0: priests and that story begins with God creating a garden called Eden where heaven and earth are one and God places humans in the garden to be his royal image his priests so that humans and God can work together as one
1: and this whole setup is called God's blessing but tragically the priestly humans are duped into rebelling against God and then exiled from the garden But God promises that one day a descendant will come to defeat
0: that evil deceiver and restore humanity as royal priests. And
1: we learn he'll be both a priest and a sacrifice. But as it stands, humanity is outside of Eden. And things have spiraled into chaotic violence. But
0: God chooses from the wreckage a couple, Abraham and Sarah. And God calls them to journey to the land of Canaan. And he promises to give them a huge family and all the
1: blessings of Eden. Now the blessing isn't just for them. The goal is that God's blessing flows through their family out to all the nations. And so that
0: makes Abraham's family like a priesthood. So is Abraham that royal priest we've been hoping for? Well, no. But Abraham does meet a mysterious figure who reminds us of that promised royal priest. And who is this? Well, Abraham is returning victorious from a risky battle. And he passes by the city of Shalem and this king comes out to meet him. And we're told that this king is also a priest who serves the same God that Abraham does.
1: Ah yes, Melchizedek. This man's a mystery. We don't know why he worships Abraham's God. We don't even know his family lineage. Exactly. But here's what happens.
0: Melchizedek brings this great feast out to Abraham and his army, and then he gives God's blessing to Abraham, saying God is the one who gave him this victory over his enemies. Then Abraham gives Melchizedek one-tenth of everything that he has, and that's the story. So what is it all about? Well, Melchizedek is the king and the priest of Shalem, which
1: is an ancient name short for Jerusalem. Ah, Jerusalem, which will later become the capital of Abraham's future family, where the temple is built. And that 10% that Abraham gives Melchizedek, that's just like the 10% Israelites will later give to honor the priests who work in the temple.
0: Exactly. And so here is Abraham, the father of the Israelites, and he's honoring a royal priesthood that existed long before Israel's temple or their priests. Ah, Melchizedek. Yeah, he's super important, and we'll come back to him when we get
1: to the story of David. Okay, back to Abraham. We find out that he and Sarah are unable to have kids. And they're really old, so how are they going to have a family? Well, they scheme up their own plan. Sarah forces her
0: Egyptian slave to produce a child with Abraham. But once that happens, Sarah ends up
1: despising her slave and oppressing her. So instead of trusting God for a family, they do it on their own terms. Right. And so God eventually does
0: give them their own son, Isaac, but then God promptly asks for the life of that son
1: back. Abraham is called to offer up Isaac on a mountain as a sacrifice. And we're told this is a test. God's requiring Abraham to own up to his failures, to stop his scheming, and to surrender his family's future to God. Abraham and Isaac go up the mountain, build an altar, and right as Abraham is about to offer up his son... God stops him, and he provides
0: a substitute ram that can be sacrificed in Isaac's place. And here, the narrator stops the story and starts speaking to you, the reader, saying... This is why we today say, on the mountain of Yahweh, it will be provided. The mountain of Yahweh, that's Jerusalem. That's right, and so notice, in both of these stories we've looked at, Abraham is near that high place
1: that will later be called Jerusalem. In the first story, Abraham meets a royal priest, and in the second story, God provides a substitute sacrifice that covers for the sins of Abraham's family.
0: Yes, and both of these stories point forward to the need for a future royal priest, who will also become a sacrifice for the sins
1: of Abraham and his family. From here, Abraham's family grows to become an entire people. But they eventually end up as slaves in Egypt. And so, how can a group of slaves produce a royal priest?
0: Exactly. And so that brings us to Moses,
1: whose story we are going to look at
0: next.
2: The button. There we go. Good morning. All right. So, today, uh, as you guys know, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And today, we're starting with chapter seven with this mysterious guy, uh, Melchizedek. I'm going to probably call him Mel most of the day today so I don't mess the name up because y'all know me. Um, And I wanted to share this video this morning because it talks about Melchizedek, but it also ties in his story with the story of Abraham. And if you'll remember when we went through the, book of, the Ex- book of Exodus a couple of years ago, one of the things that we talked about regularly is that as we look at the Old Testament, we don't need to look at it as someone else's story, but this is whose story? This is our story. As children of God, this is our family lineage. It is significant about who we are. It tells us who we are and who God has called us to be. And so today, as we jump back into the book of Hebrews, I want to remind us while we're here, if you'll remember this Church is, is an early church that is struggling with persecution like we've talked about this morning a lot. And this letter is written to, to be sent out to several of these churches that are struggling as a way of encouraging them to stay steadfast in their faith. You see, we talked, the video this morning talked about the original problem. We, we constantly see ourselves going back to the garden, constantly seeing the, the first sin that happens and how that divided our relationship with God. And so as we're looking at the story of Melchizedek today, we've got to go back to that beginning. Today we're going to talk a lot about um, lineage, about our family stories. But I want us to remember that as this letter was being written to the Hebrew people, that the connections that were being made in their mind are connections that we don't always have. And so today we're going to spend a good portion of our time looking at a story that we may know, but there's some details that we may have missed in the past that would have been very well um, clicked together in the minds of the Hebrew people as they read this letter. And so today I want to I talk with us in the beginning about the significance of a name. You, you know in, in the Bible, we're going to talk about Abraham some more today, that his original name was Abram. And then after God promises him a son, he changes his name to Abraham. We see in the life of God's people that their names are significant. You may not think about it often, but the lineage of a person tells you a lot about that person. I am the way I am because of the way my father raised me and his father raised him. And you can just continue to go on and on and on down that line. So for me to say to you that I am a Butterfield, it tells you things about who I am if you know other Butterfields. Today, as we learn in this video, we, um, we aren't told about Melchizedek's lineage. We're going to see that this morning in Scripture, that it was very purposely omitted from the story, and we want to see what that purpose was. But before we get to that, I want to make this point about lineage. I don't know about you, but I always find it odd when I hear stories. We've, we've talked a lot about Abraham recently, how God made this promise that he was going to give him this land. Right, that there were people living in it and God's gonna send them in there and He's gonna displace the people that are currently living there and then Abraham is gonna own that land. I've always struggled with that a little bit because I wasn't sure like why that was okay. Has anybody else had that thought before? Like why is it okay that God would displace some people? And so this is one of those connections that the Hebrew people would have made. And I want to show this to you this morning. I discovered it this week, and it, I, like, I, I can't wait to share the details of this story and why God was doing what he was doing, okay? So remember that God sent Abraham out to take possession of a land. We see this in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. It says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Now, keep in mind that the author of Hebrews is using this story of Abraham and Melchizedek to make a point about Jesus and Jesus' priesthood. If you go back and look at the narrative of this story, you're going to see God's promise to Abraham isn't far removed from this interaction with Mel. To recap, Abraham goes into the land where God leads him, He disobeys God by bringing his nephew Lot with him, and then Lot and his family get captured by these nine kingdoms that come in to raid the land, and now Abraham has gone to rescue him. And we pick up our story with Mel as Abraham is returning victorious from that battle. So then we get our narrative for today that the author of Hebrews is pointing to, and this is in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20. Look at this with me. It says, after Abram returned from, from defeating uh, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shavah Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Melchizedek blesses him. And then look what happens next because Abraham is in the land. But Abraham is still struggling. If we go on to read after chapter 14, it's where we picked up in the video today with this story of Abraham. Look at Genesis chapter 15 with me. Because Abraham asked God two really important questions. And that's going to bring us back to our discussion on lineage don't forget, we're still talking about lineage, but we've got to look at all the details because this would have been in the minds of the people that are reading this letter. So look at Genesis chapter 15 with me. It says, after these events, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus, or uh, one of his slaves? Abram continued, uh, Look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look at the sky and count the stars. If you are able to count them. Then he said, Your offspring will be that numerous. And Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur and the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? And he said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them, and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, "I give you this land to your offspring, from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River. The land from the Canaanites, Canaanites, Gadomites, Hittites, Perizzites." Um, Raphaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Okay, so we have this big long story of Abram having this discussion with God and saying, God, you're saying that you're going to bless me and I don't have any children. And also you put me in this land, but how do I know that I'll possess it? And so God foretells what, when we studied the book of Egypt, that 400 years in another land, that's the captivity of the Israelite people. So God's foretelling Abram what's going to happen, and then when they leave from there, they're going to leave with possessions, which we know to be true because we study through the book of Hebrews, and then he's going to send them back to this land. But who owns this land? Let's go back to lineage. Who are these people that are being listed off? Who's getting kicked out? If you'll think back after the flood, we're talking about Noah now. We're going to jump to Noah because he's in Abraham's lineage. All of us are. If we think back to Noah, do you remember what happened after Noah and his family got out of the ark? If you don't, let's look at it. Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 through 28. Noah, as a man of the soil, began to plant a vineyard. Then he drank some of its wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a cloak and placed it over both their shoulders, Walking backward, they covered their father's nakedness, and their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Canaan is cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Let God extend Japheth. Let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Now Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So to recap noah has too much to drink and and i just want to i don't want to spend a lot of time on this but this is back paralleling to the garden after the flood when god destroyed all the creatures of the earth except those that were on the ark noah begins again with what a garden and in the garden he has too much of the fruit of it and there's nakedness and there's shame that comes along with that and what we read from this story is that ham his middle son doesn't just see his father in his nakedness, but he goes beyond that. He goes back to tell his brothers about what he's seen. You can feel the tension and the strife that's happening there. And as a result of that, Noah curses Cain, okay? So guess who Ham's descendants were? The Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, the Hithites. That's all or a good chunk of the people that are listed when God tells Abram, you're going to go and, and, and take over this land. Guess who is a descendant or, or a, 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 the ancestor of Abraham? Got any guesses? Shem. Now think about this. Do you think that when Abraham, when God tells him, you're going to go and possess this land, do you think that Abraham knew that those were the descendants of Ham? I guarantee you did. You know why? Why? Because Shem was still alive. Shem lived to be 600 years old. 150 years of Abram's life, Shem was alive. He died when Abram was 150 years old. Lineage. It matters. It's important. So when God tells Abraham to go into this land, there's a level of understanding that that we don't have. Because we didn't have those pieces put together. God's not just displacing some unknown people. God is fulfilling the curse that happened through Noah, which is intended to remind us of original sin that happened in the garden and the curse that exists on us because of the sin in our lives. God is using this story. He's using this narrative to communicate to his people The fact that he is working in their lives now with all of that in mind look back at our text from Hebrews today verses 1 through 3 in chapter 7 says from Melchizedek king of Salem or Shalom priest of the God most high met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings and Abram gave him a tenth of everything for his first name means king of righteousness then also king of Shalom meaning king of peace Without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, He remains priest forever. So, here we are, we're sitting among these churches that are being persecuted, and the the author of Hebrews has been making this case that that Jesus isn't just a priest, but He's the most high priest, He's the best priest. The Bible is so rich in genealogy, and and it... It uses it so often to prove who someone is or who someone isn't. And in this particular story, it's intentionally left out. And so we have to ask ourselves, if everywhere else in Scripture, you look at the birth of Jesus in the book of Matthew, and there's all this genealogy to prove that Jesus is in the line of David as God promised that he would be. If the lineage of Melchizedek is left out, why is that? And it's because the focus of this passage is not on a man, but on a typology, it's on a type of person. The point of the story is not the man. The point of the story is what the man stands for. The author of Hebrews is adding more depth to this case about Jesus being the great high priest because he's pointing to a position, not the manner, and the, excuse me, the position and the manner of Melchizedek, the way he interacted with Abraham. So what are we told about Melchizedek? That he's the king of Shalom and the priest of the God Most High. He's a king and a priest. I'm sure you caught this, but in the video this morning, we're reminded that this story, just like Christ's story, points us back to the garden. God's people are still looking for and waiting for that promised one that finally would be able to break sin's control on God's people. And then we see Mel presented as a reminder of that, promise, of that promise with the purpose of preparing God's people for the Messiah that God was going to send. God is working in the lives of his people to prepare their hearts and their minds to see the kind of priest, royal priest that would come. And I want you to think for a moment about the, the dichotomy between a priest and a king. Priests are, are in a place of service. They serve the people. They are to be the mediator between the people and God. And a king is in a place of authority. And often when we see a king, we don't think about service. It's uncommon to say the least for a king to also literally serve his people. Now we have sayings in modern day culture that a person in leadership, perhaps a, a politician or a public servant Their role is to serve the people, but often we see that flip-flop, and the power is what the focus is on and not the service. But that's not what we see with Mel. And the author of Hebrews is pointing us back to this story to show the church that God had been paving the way for Jesus since the beginning. He's reintroducing them to the idea of the type of person that Jesus will be. Look with me again at this interaction between Abram and Melchizedek. In uh, chapter, Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20, it says, After Abram returned from defeating Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shavah Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So what does is, what is, uh, Mel do for Abram and these 318 men that went and battled with him? He brings out food and wine, bread and wine. Foreshadowing much, right? Think about Jesus. Think about this typology that we're talking about. What does Jesus do for us and for his disciples? The last thing he does is he brings out bread and wine. What I want us to see is that Melchizedek serves Abram's people. And Abram himself. Keep in mind that there was no requirement, no outside reason for him to do this. He is a king. And these, Abram is passing through his territory. If anything, he would have an opportunity to attack him. But he doesn't. He goes out and he serves him. There was no obligation there. But because of his relationship with God, Mel goes out to meet Abraham and serve him and his men. And then the second thing he does is that he blesses them. He confirms and reminds Abraham of the promise that God has already made. Think about that for a minute. When it says he blesses him, he is confirming what God has already promised. Does that sound familiar to you guys? What does Scripture tell us that Jesus did? Only what the Father tells him. Again, we see this typology that we are being shown the type of person that Jesus was. As the Hebrews were struggling, as they're being persecuted, the author is taking the time to point them back to this mysterious man who is put there in place to represent the coming Messiah, to tell people of the kind of person that he would be author of Hebrews is revealing this long-established pattern to the church. Since Adam and Eve, God's been working in the lives of his people to restore the relationship that was broken by sin. Jesus was not some new fad or just a popular guy for that time period. He was so much more than that. That he's communi- communicating that Jesus was the fulfillment of a promise that God made back in the garden. And then he's pointing to these high markers in the lives of Israel to say... God made this promise, He reminded us here, He reminded us here, He fulfilled it right here. And so this Jesus, that you are struggling to believe that He is the Son of God, that you are being persecuted and tried to convince that He is not, we can see these markers over and over and over again where God is saying, this is the kind of priest that I am sending for you. And we see that in the nature and in the manner of Jesus. Jesus was the king of righteousness and of peace. And there's one last thing I want to draw our attention to this morning. Look with me at verse 3 again in Hebrews chapter 7. It says, without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Again, we're talking about a topology, not a person. He's not saying that Melchizedek was eternal. He wasn't uh, a reincarnated Jesus or anything like that. We're talking about a type, okay? He's reminding the church that his priestly and kingly line would last forever. And he's making a direct comparison with the line of Melchizedek and the line of the Levite priest. Because the Levite priest was just like you and I. He was born in sin, had to deal with his own sin, and died in his sin. And that line of Levi would also die it would cease to exist when jesus died on the cross because it was no longer needed because now instead of having to have that priest that atoned for our sins that was a mediator between every person and god most high jesus now stood in that place instead of the levites so again the author of hebrews drawing all this together and saying look here's the problem and here's the ways that god has put into place already to deal with the problem the problem of sin and for a long time, it was the Levites. And they played their role, they did their job. But God promised something better, and that something better was Jesus. The author of Hebrews is looping them back together into that previous argument about the superiority of Christ's priesthood. He was not just another priest. He was the best priest. He, like Mel, was, pointing, uh, was appointed by God in a priesthood that will last forever. So we got all this story. We talked about lineage today. We have talked about the importance, the typology of Jesus, his, his manner and his nature. So what's the take home for us? How do we take this information and, and get it into our lives in a way that it makes a difference for us and for the people around us? Here's what I would say is that when we're thinking about the person of Jesus, we need to realize that he is not a rookie. He's not a noob. My kids will know what that is. This is not a brand new thing for him. It's not like when the Hebrew church is facing persecution that Jesus is in heaven scratching his head going, huh, I didn't see that coming. How are we going to deal with this, God? When the things that are happening in our world today with our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, Jesus is not scratching his head going, how do we deal with this now? From the beginning of time, Jesus has been, and God together have been working this plan to bring about our salvation. He's not surprised by the things that are going on in our lives and in the world around us. That's the takeaway from us, that when life is busy, Miss Debbie, thank you so much for that testimony today, that he is relentless in speaking to his people because he wants us to know him. He wanted you to know him this week as rest. He wanted you to know him today or this week as protector, as provider, as healer. And God is speaking in all of our lives in that way. And so as we are struggling, like the people in the book of Hebrews with wondering and struggling with this idea, is Jesus really who people say he is? What our hope is, what our anchor is, like we talked about last week, is the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And all through scripture, not just the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see over and over and over again, everything pointing back to Jesus, of God saying, I'm sending something. Your rescuer is on the way. He's on the way. The the author of Hebrews is trying to tell the church that while they are suffering through persecution, Jesus is there with them in the midst of it. He is aware of it. Most of us know that when we're struggling, there's this feeling that we are alone in our suffering, that we are the only people who could possibly feel the way that we feel right now. What the truth is that you and I know is that Jesus has suffered just the way that we suffered. He knows our suffering. He knows our struggle. He empathizes with us. And most importantly, he is working in the midst of that struggle to draw us to himself. We are not alone. He knows it. We are not abandoned. We are not forgotten. We are loved and we are known right where we are, right in the middle of our struggle. That's a story worth sharing. That's a story that we need to preach to ourselves. That is a story that we need to share with the people around us, that when they are in the midst of struggle, God knows that struggle. He understands it because Jesus walked through it as a human just like we did. And he offers comfort. He offers love. You and I have these stories of Jesus' work in our lives. We We are a walking and talking testimony of the goodness of Jesus about His righteousness and the peace that are actively working in the lives of His people. Because we're not the only ones who experience this. But there may be people in your life where you are the only person they know that's experiencing that. Ms. Debbie, I appreciate you sharing with us this morning your struggle to just share your story. You're not alone in that. It's difficult for us to talk about what God is doing and saying in our lives. For some reason, or I, don't know, I know the reason, Satan has shrouded that and made us feel like we're weirdos if we talk about what God's doing in our lives. But the whole Bible is nothing but story after story of what God is doing in people's lives. We're not adding to Scripture, but we are testifying about a true and a living God that is alive and well today and is working in our lives. Jesus is working every day. He's loved us from the beginning. He's always going to love us. And the people in our lives, whether it's our family members, our friends, the community that we live in, or people across the globe, all of us need to know that. Jesus is alive. He's active. He's speaking. And He is relentless in His desire for you to know Him. And He's proven that by the cost that He paid in order for you to have that opportunity. So, church, as we go forward this week, our takeaway is to share the goodness of God is to be able to tell people that this is our story, not TGP West, not the Gathering Place Network, but this is our story as the people of God, the center of the world, and God has for all of history been working to bring us back to restore the relationship that was broken, that he loves us and that we're known. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful for the love that you've shown to us as a people. God, that you have been working for so long and for so hard just so that we could know you and experience your love. Father, as we go through this next week, I ask that you would continue to give us opportunities to hear your voice and then to share what we're hearing with the people that we live with. God, that we wouldn't keep those things to ourselves, but when people ask questions about our lives, that we can be honest, that we can be brave, that we can have courage to talk about what you're telling us. Father, so that other people can get to experience the joy, the peace that comes from knowing you and walking with you. Father, as we close in worship today, God, I ask that you would draw our hearts to you. That you would help us to have a moment to just focus in on your goodness and to ponder what it would look like for us and for the people in our lives when they experience your love. Jesus, we ask these things in your name. Amen.